What time is it? Let me check my watch. Oh, it's bone o'clock. In olden days, a glimpse of femur was only for morbid dreamers, but you're not alone. Bring anything bones. Two goofy gals with deathly interest go on a skeleton in quest in your headphones. Anything bones. Hello, and welcome to Anything Bones. Me? I'm Sophie Schwartz. And me? I'm Caitlin Hart. And I accept this message. Wait, what? <laughs> Do you accept my bone? <laughs> I accept your bones. I accept the charges. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you do? Yes, I take financial responsibility. Oh, but Caitlin, so much damage was done. Oh, okay. I guess I'm not really that well-versed on life insurance and i don't know where are we going with this oh. i don't know but if someone's taking out life insurance on you check on them yeah that's always the first is. sign <laughs> i'm so scared of those just because they seem like they always point to a murderer anyway moving on i'm sorry i'm just gonna go ahead and say that if anyone ever tries to take life insurance out on me we're done <laughs> we have to be <laughs> we have to be done here <laughs> All right, so this week it's just you and me. Yeah, you and I are going to talk about Bones together, and I'm hoping that it'll be a nice time. The world is a little more hopeful, a little, you know, I'm I'm skeptical, but I'm optimistic for the first time in a way that I haven't been in four years. Uh, so I don't know. Things are at least happening. Yeah, and it still feels, you know, weird and tumultuous because of, you know, the pandemic's still going strong. We still Definitely. have racial inequality and all the fun problems we face today. But at least I feel like we have, I feel like all the pundits are saying we now have adults in the, way, in the White House. And for yeah. better, for worse, I think we have people who are actually passionate about protecting the people who live in this country rather than just exploiting them for their money and the power that being their leader presents anyway. <laughs> Woof. Wow. Politics aside, do you want to talk about bones now on our true crime bony podcast? Yes. The answer to that will always be yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, all right. So I'll go first this week. Yeah. Kick it off. Yeah, so I'm, I don't know, I'm going to start at the first article that I found, which is about a sort of a true crime case. And then I'm going to branch out into something that I found fascinating. So get ready for this. Saying the title of my story kind of gives it away. So I'm just going to like dive right in, no title. Okay. So my story is based on some articles from... University of Tennessee's website, Atlas Obscura, Knox News, which I believe is Knoxville News, and ah. of course, uh, Wikipedia. The way I'm going to start my story is, in 2018, remains of an Indiana woman were successfully identified because of a joint effort between the University of Tennessee's Forensic Anthropology Center and the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. So this is exciting right? We've yes. got a body that has been, it was found in 1985 on January 1st. She was a woman found dead along I-5 near Jellico in Campbell County, Tennessee. Her fingerprints and like physical features were noted by investigators, but they couldn't, they had no luck in identifying her at that time. So they, it's 1985, they take her body to the anthropology research facility, which is also known as the body farm. <laughs> <gasps> yes. So this is the story in a roundabout way of the one of the cases of the body farm. Oh, body farms are so fascinating to me. Yes. I, you know, they are something I was aware of, I think, because of crime shows that I watch. <laughs> And I can't pinpoint exactly which shows have 
had body farms on them, I feel like Bones would have. Oh, yeah. a good old-fashioned episode about a body farm on it. Like, I really feel like I can picture that, but I Mm -hmm. can't verify it. And Wikipedia said, actually, CSI's kind of depiction of body farms actually kind of helped their rep. Uh, at a certain like people were kind of like what the fuck are these assholes doing like this is this is bad and depictions of no this is for research you assholes like from CSI (laughs) changed people's minds I mean because I think if you find out what a body farm is without the context of what is like actually used for it is kind of horrific so we're focused right now on this Jane Doe We end up finding out that she's from Indiana, but her body is found in Tennessee, unsolved. So it goes to University of Tennessee's facility and they're able to estimate with their equipment, their their brains, (laughs) that she was only 20 at the time of her death, which is just so, so awful. And so this article that I'm quoting from came out in 2018 and quote, her skeletal remains have been part of the laboratory's collection ever since, said Lee Meadows Jance, associate director of the Forensic Anthropology Center. My man Jance. (laughs) That's... That's Lee Jance. That's, I don't you know. know what I always say when I, when, I, when I see stuff about a body farm, I say, that's my man, Lee Jance. I don't know which part of his name is most exciting, because we've also got Meadows in there. Oh, So, God, what a cool name. Uh, and a cool job, God. Yeah. Um, so, I guess in, when this came out in September, so they say a month ago. So let's say sometime in August, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, I guess, followed up on a lead from a blog about missing persons. Mm-hmm. Or there's also another source said that, you know, like a, a investigator just did the usual thing of finding evidence that could use new technology or like new technology could be used to look at old evidence and then that's how the case, spoiler alert, the case gets solved. <laughs> I'm not telling the story right. <laughs> I don't know what. It needs to have a beginning, middle, and end. What the hell did they teach us at this liberal arts school? <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> channel, channel Karen Kilgariff. <laughs> she wants a beginning, a middle, and an end. Focus, Caitlin, focus. Oh my God. Come on, Katoon, you got this. <laughs> All right. So. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigations finds a match to her fingerprints through arrest records in Marion County, Indiana, and Jane Doe gets identified as Tina Marie McKinney Farmer. Hmm. Now, my next source is from Knox News, Knoxville News, question mark? Knock, knock, it's it's the news. (laughs) Who's there? Oh, it's it's the news. You already told me. (laughs) Knock, knock, comma, it's the news. (laughs) Um, so this article is by Hayes Hickman and it came out on December 19th, 2019. So this is still, this is pretty recent actually. Um, the case was actually solved. So her body was identified in 2018 and then in 2019, her case was solved. They found out who did it. And it was a truck driver from Cleveland, Tennessee, who had at the time been a suspect in the so-called redhead murders of the 1980s, which is something oh, I've never heard of. Neither but have I. No, horrifying. I don't like yeah. that name. I don't like the concept. No, uh, no, This no. asshole's name is Jerry Leon Johns. Um, yeah. And DNA analysis actually indicated that he was the man who killed her. He died in prison for a different crime though he was already dead like four years by the time this was figured out so there's it's kind of uh i don't know it's sad because it's good because they solved it but the guy who did it is already dead so there's no justice in that kind of he went he never went to court for her murder so yeah but i mean it opens i think if this is going where I think it's going. I think it probably opens the door for other cases to, to be solved and justice to be served. Yes. Yes, it does. It is. I don't know if it's, I can't quite tell. It seems like the body farm and law enforcement do a lot of stuff together. I don't know if this was like the first one, 
but this is an important one. I actually like most of my sources about all the stuff about the case is from the University of Tennessee's like website. <laughs> so it's very much something they're proud of, it seems like. Um, Would be. <laughs> yeah. Damn. So the Redhead murders were, oh God, uh, at least 11 unsolved homicides, uh, quote, involving young women with red or reddish hair and slightly slight builds whose bodies were found close to major highways in Tennessee and several other states between 1978 and 1992. Some called them the redhead murders. That's horrific. Yeah. So, yeah, another source said that DNA evidence was found that could be treated with modern science. So then the semen samples found that were uh, matched to John's. Anyway, so uh, I can't, I, that, I started with this case and then I was like, wait, I kind of know what a body farm is, but let me figure out a little bit more. Let me understand what goes on at a body farm. Uh, yeah. My note here said, my, my note says, so what the hell is the body farm? I'm losing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so in the weeds with this body farm. <laughs> Okay, so the term farm is a little bit of a, uh, a red herring, I guess, because they're not farming anything. Um, <laughs> they're actually studying human bodies and how they decompose. Mm. <laughs> so there's no farming. They're not, per se. They're not growing little people like corn? Uh, I don't know exactly. I'm going to say no. No. I'm going to say no. I'm going to go ahead and say no. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm thinking about it. Okay. So where is the body farm? It's outside of Knoxville, which is where the University of Tennessee is. Just behind one of the buildings. <laughs> Hi. Casual. <laughs> yeah. There's a 2.5 acre plot, uh, which is surrounded, of course, by fence. They have to, you know. Thank God. To be guarded. Yeah. People can't just wander in. Oh God, what an, what an absolute nightmare. You're a drunk college student, you know, you're coming mm-hmm. home from the mm-hmm. Sigma Chi party and you're just oh, no. into the body farm. You do the whole trip, fall down and you're face to face with the skull and you do the home alone screen. Anyway. God. Ugh. Okay. The body farm was sort of created by, it's this guy, William K. Bass. <laughs> Great names. Yeah. <laughs> lots of lots of good names. He opened it in 1981. And at that time, quote, he had one dead body and a 16 square foot cage. Well, you got to start somewhere. <laughs> By 2007, the farm had over 150 decaying specimen, many donated to the farm by interested volunteers. Oh, yeah. This is a cool. This is cool. I like this place. Bass, this is from Wikipedia, so, you know, grain of salt, but I, I love this story and it fits right in snugly in our podcast. <laughs> There's a, according to Wikipedia, in December of 1977, uh, Bass was summoned to a, like a crime scene uh, where they found, they thought it was a murder victim buried on top of a grave of a Confederate soldier who had died in 1864. So there's a, there's a grave and there's a body on top of the grave. And they're like, what, what the fuck is this? The body was, and they thought that it was new because the body was quote, relatively intact, contained most of its flesh. So at first they thought, Oh, he's only been dead for less than a year. Then they realize after examining the clothes that it's actually the body from the coffin. Oh, no. they think that grave robbers had taken the body out oh and then God. buried the guy back, but on oh top my of God. his coffin. And Bass was like, this will not do. It took me too long to figure out uh, how old this body was. So I have to hold everything. I have to start a center <laughs> where I put bodies on the ground and I look at them. <laughs> hold my beer. I have to decompose some corpses. <laughs> That's, that's insane. I hope that's true. Again, that's from Wikipedia. Yeah, but like, they've, so they robbed the body, took, I guess, whatever they wanted, did whatever they wanted to it, and then they buried it back on top. They didn't even take the top. Yeah, 
that's what I get from that. It seems like uh, he was a Confederate soldier, da, 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 died in Franklin, Tennessee in the Battle of Nashville. So maybe he was buried with important guns or, you know, a, a musket, <laughs> a maybe knife. So- yeah, maybe someone wanted to dig up his super racist flag that they could just wave I, around. I mean, yeah. Hey, my Confederate flag. I can't wait to get it out of this <laughs> coffin. God. My grandpa's old, terrible racist flag. We gotta go get it. Can we just put all Confederate flags? Can we just either bury them all or burn them all? Like, we're done with them, please. Yeah, well, they're the flags of traitors of this country. Anyway, (laughs) anyway. anyway. So back to the farm. Um, (laughs) At the farm, bodies are placed in like a bunch of different scenarios to be studied. Of course, how else are you going to figure out how different (laughs) circumstances are going to make decomposing bodies different you know what i mean you know what i'm saying oh my god (laughs) so here's a quote clothed dead bodies naked dead bodies dead bodies underwater dead bodies in cars the list goes on bass's work on the body farm has revolutionized the field of forensic anthropology end quote and of course i mean that's that's insane that's revolutionary yeah he wanted to know what bodies look like in all the mm-hmm. different you know ways of decomposition no one had that data he was like okay i'm gonna put body in a car put body out in yeah a body yeah. in some leaves exactly exactly so this is i can't remember where this quote is from but quote <laughs> from one of my lovely sources um (laughs) over the past 45 years university of tennessee's body farm has received the remains of about 70 unidentified individuals they have worked to resolve these cold cases for the past 10 years and so far have been able to successfully identify 20 individuals end quote so and they do a lot of work with the obviously the tennessee bureau of investigations that's how they are connected to tina farmer's case and it's a really cool really cool research facility. I was looking at it and there was like a tab that was like prospective students. And I was like, do I click that? (laughs) And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to click that. I'm not a, what? Like, I don't know. That's such a big decision, but I was like, oh, this place is so cool. And it's written all over the website. Okay. There are no tours at the body farm. (laughs) It's damn it. It's everywhere. It's written everywhere. There is no mistaking it. You have to be an academic or like part of law enforcement to go to the body farm. You can't just show up as a member of the public. I mean, I, that is for the best. Yes. But, but. I I know, I know, I know. I'm not sure if I could take it actually. I'm not sure if. Uh, No, I don't think. Because that's intense. There's got to be some like. If I remember the the Bones episode correctly, and we all know Bones turns up the goo on any given skeleton by 75%, yes. mm-hmm. but like it, the smell has got to be something like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they're on this two and a half acre property. They, you know, it's all documented. It's all, it's all legit, but it is a little creepy. <laughs> I will say. Uh, it's a yeah. little macabre. <laughs> Yeah, you could not pay me enough to, like, even stand outside that fence at night. Like, that's got to be, like, a hazing mm-hmm. thing for mm. the new people. Just, you got to stand by the body farm at night. <laughs> oh, my God. No. I wouldn't want to spend any time at the body farm, actually. Even though I thought about it for a second, and then I was like, no, no, it's for the best that there are no tours. But I will tell you, they are pretty open. Their their website is very helpful about like what is there. What is there is a couple of different like skeleton collections. <gasps> One is the William M. Bass donated skeletal collection. Bass, again, is the guy who started it. So this collection, this is according to the website for the university, contains nearly 1,700 individuals and growing. <gasps> The collection also contains over 50 cremated individuals. So I guess they're oh, wow. able to extract something even from cremated remains. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder how they use those. I also wonder that. I don't know. I didn't go into that. Hmm. So they use this collection for a lot of different things. 
quote, using this collection ranges from skeletal biology and forensic to dental, biomedical, and genetics, as well as other fields. There are also blood, hair, and fingernail samples from the donors available for research. The demographic profile predominantly includes Americans of European and African ancestry and a smaller portion of Hispanic ancestry. The age range of the individuals is from fetal up to 101 years. I know. Fetal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, awful, but part of life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I guess maybe studying them can help yeah. research in the future to prevent other infant deaths. Yeah. Anyway, God, this topic is heavy. Heavier <laughs> than I thought it was gonna be. Sorry. It's okay. We're just we're just thinking about fetal remains. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh we are. Okay, moving on from that, please. The other skeletal collection is also named after William Bass. So I'm like, okay, what's the difference? Okay, Um, they couldn't have found another (laughs) person to name it after. Come on. I mean, I think he did a lot for this museum. Um, No, it's not a museum. It's not a museum. It's a, it's a, it's more than a museum. It's everything. It's a, it's not a museum at all. Nobody's uh, discounting Bass and his excellent achievements. But he already has one skeletal collection. <laughs> Let's not be greedy. Yeah. Okay. But this one, this one is a little bit different. And uh, there are there were a few different sort of collections that were listed on the website. I only wanted to focus on these two because I think they're interesting, even though they're named after the same person. <laughs> this is the William Bass Forensic Skeletal Collection. Ah. So. In Tennessee, he was the state forensic anthropologist in the 1970s. So this collection has over 100 cases that have skeletal elements present. So basically, there's like 100 either, you know, pieces of bones or skeleton. You know, I'm not quite sure exactly. But a lot of the cases have, like, they've been able to identify the bones or sorry, actually, most of the cases, they haven't been able to identify the bones. So some of them have been identified, but most of them have not in this collection. Mm-hmm. And the collection includes a lot of types of perimortem trauma, quote, gunshot wounds, stabbing, and other sharp force injury and blunt force trauma. The individuals in this collection are predominantly from Tennessee, which makes sense because that he was the state forensic anthropologist. Mm-hmm. He was the state Temperance Brennan <laughs> in the 70s, I like to think. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of bones, they were like, Bass, get on yeah. the case. <laughs> Bass, we need ya. <laughs> put down your cigar and put your mustache uh, Calm on. down. <laughs> I don't know. Put your mustache on. <laughs> Bass, stop eating that stack Please, of Bass. blueberry pancakes <laughs> and put your mustache on. Let's get to work. Oh my God. Pancakes. Like don't even say pancakes. I've had pancakes for breakfast the last two mornings and I regret nothing. (laughs) I put in here, I'm almost done. I wanted to make sure that I told you that, (laughs) that they do not provide tours on the body farm. I put it in my notes a couple of times because it was so heavily emphasized. And I'm so heavily disappointed. I know. Okay. I want to just end with a quote. It's kind of like, it kind of sums up the mission statement of this body farm via their website. Quote, the purpose of the Forensic Anthropology Center is to provide research, training, and service with compassion. I love that. The body donation program is the heart and soul of the Forensic Anthropology Center, and we ensure that all of the families and donors are treated with the utmost respect and compassion. The donation program enables individuals to contribute to science in a direct and meaningful way, end quote. Oh, damn. Yeah. So we like the body farm. They do a lot of cool things. Yeah. And I love how much respect they have for the bodies that are participating Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's choosing to, choosing what's going to happen to you when you die is, it's a big thing. And, you know. To, to choose to further science mm-hmm. is, is admirable. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But again, we can't go there unless, we're, unless we go to school for m- a lot of years. Well, like the secret, I'm just going to put it out there that if you are part of this body farm and post-pandemic want to give your favorite bony ladies 
not a tour because tours are not allowed, but no perhaps uh, to us escort us around while giving us information. Wink, wink. Right. I nudge, would settle, nudge. I would take a virtual tour, you know, a virtual meeting, if you will, a Zoom oh. with with the body farm. Can I Zoom with the bodies? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> Ooh, put Dolores's eye back in her head. Oh god. Yeah. So that's the body farm. I love it. Shout out to my brother Matt who has been asking us to do body farms for a while. Really? Oh. Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Well, he had suggested it to me pretty early on in the thing. He's uh he was an EMT and he's training to be a paramedic for those of you listening. But he had suggested body farms. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's an excellent idea. But it's so much research. You know, body farms are, you know, there's a lot to say about them. And yeah. So, so I'm glad you did it instead of me. Well, I only did one. This that's was true. just one body farm. I mean, there are definitely others out there. This was just one in Tennessee. Well, perhaps the beginning of a series. <laughs> Depending on how many body farms we find uh, yeah. on the internet. Oh, well, uh, I want them to be legit. Legit. <laughs> oh, my God. I've got a body farm, and I do give tours. Oh, God. Greasy Johnny, what are you talking about? It's me, Greasy Johnny. <laughs> I'm back. I don't have a whale this time, but I do have many human bodies. <laughs> I think Greasy. I'm Scottish, but I'm getting this voice. <laughs> Greasy Johnny, I wouldn't give you a, a dime to see your whale, nor your bones. Oh, you've made Greasy Johnny so mad. <laughs> you know, get out of here. Kick. Eh, leh, leh. He slithers away. He like slip and slides away. Well, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Definitely want more b- body farm content in the future. Yeah, this isn't over yet. <laughs> this isn't over. You hear me, body farms? <laughs> I will get a tour. <laughs> or I will just get more information into my just... own brain at some point. I will learn more. Or you just give up and you just go get another degree, Caitlin. Just very casually just go get another give degree. Up and go get another degree. <laughs> just give in. I've been begging you to just, you know what, Caitlin, uh, just become a forensic anthropologist for me, won't you? <laughs> you know, just because I like it on the TV means I should probably just do it in real life. Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of doing things in real life, I should oh. do my segment in real life. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The show's the show's not over. No. No, no more gabbing. <clears throat> no more gabbing. Well, there will be lots of gabbing. Okay. So, I decided to bring you something fun and I will be bringing you the shipwreck of the Nuestra Señora de Atocha. Oh. <laughs> So my sources for this were Wikipedia, History.com, MarineExecutive.com. Yes. And the New York Times. Heard of it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, I have. I've Uh, used them. They they do good work there. They peddle their goods. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to go back in time to the 1600s. Mm-hmm. We're talking kind of Spanish golden age of ship exploration and other people's shit stealing. Okay. <laughs> the Spanish okay. love to absolutely pilfer South America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So the Nuestra Señora de Atocha or Our Lady of Atocha, was a Spanish treasure galleon and the most widely known vessel of a fleet of ships that sank in a hurricane off the Florida Keys in 1622. Ooh, those hurricanes. They'll get you every time. Exactly. And so at the time of her sinking, the Nuestra Señora was heavily laden with copper, silver, gold, tobacco, gems, and indigo from Spanish ports from New Granada, which is present-day Colombia and Panama, and Havana, and all over South America. 
So this treasure, which arrived by mule in Panama City, was so fucking big that it took two months to record it and load it onto the ships. Oh, no. (laughs) And so there was kind of a big convoy of ships. There was, I think, about 28 ships that were going to be bringing this massive amount of treasure back to Spain. Mm -hmm. So each ship in the convoy carried crew, soldiers, passengers, provisions, and treasure, like I said, from all over South America. The Nuestra Senora alone carried cargo whose estimated value was between 250 and 500 million dollars. Oh, casual. No problem. Very casual. Again, silver from Peru and Mexico, gold and emeralds from Colombia, pearls from Venezuela, as well as more common kind of like everyday goods like silverware and bronze cannons. You know, everyday bronze cannons. Not your special occasion gold cannons. No. Your everyday bronze cannons. No, these are your run-of-the-mill, you know, every woman should have a good bronze cannon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. This 28-ship convoy was actually late on their departure by six weeks. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> because of all the treasure that they had to load up. And they didn't leave until September 4th, 1662. By the morning of September 6th... <laughs> what happened? Eight of the ships had been sunk and their remains lay scattered from the Marcus Keys to the Dry Tortugas. And the Nuestra Senora alone had lost her 265 crew members and passengers, except for three sailors and two slaves who had survived by clinging to the mizzenmast. Oh, no. They knew what I always say. Get your ass up that mizzenmast. (laughs) There it is. Oh, wow. There it is. Ding dong. Uh... (laughs) So all of the treasure sank with the ship, of course. Is that what caused the shipwreck? Or no, no, you said it was a hurricane. It was a big-ass hurricane. Big hurricane. And yeah, all the treasure at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, all the treasure at the bottom of the ocean. And they were about 86, 87 miles away from Havana. So after this, the surviving ships from this convoy go back to Spain because some ships did make it through this hurricane. Nice. Um, and then Spanish authorities dispatched another five ships to salvage the Nuestra Senora and the Santa Margarita, which was the sister ship, which also had what we would say uh, is a fuck ton of treasure. Um, <laughs> scientifically speaking. Yes. Scientifically, academically speaking, it held... <laughs> You know, a fuck, a cubic fuck ton of treasure. (laughs) So the Nuestra Senora had sunk in approximately 56 feet of water, which made it really difficult for divers to retrieve any of the cargo or guns from the ship. And then a second hurricane on Mm. October 5th of the same year made attempts at salvaging the ship even more difficult because it basically scattered and broke up the wreckage even more. Yikes. The Spaniards were trying to do these salvage operations, and what they were basically doing was using slave labor to try to salvage the ship's parts from the bottom of the ocean. The principal method used for recovery of the cargo at this time was large brass bell diving. So you know those classic like the the old timey diving helmets, yeah, with the yeah. like glass the ho- in the front. Sure, with the hose. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at right now. Oh um, my god! And they would send a poor, you know, they would send a a slave down to the bottom in one of oh. these kind of diving contraptions. Can't uh, imagine that was voluntary. Oh no, they're a slave. They have oh, absolutely god. no say in what they're doing, and don't. I would imagine don't want to be there. So they go down there. Siren, siren. (laughs) Can you still hear it? No. Okay. So the extremely unwilling slave who didn't want to be there would go down to the bottom of the fucking ocean, recover an item or a piece of cargo, and then get hauled back up by the men on deck 
and this method was often fatal. So sure. yeah, not a lot of people would survive these diet methods. God, just which was that's... great, which was so great. Ugh. Everybody loves that. So, <laughs> and dead slaves were recorded as business expenses by the captains of the salvage ships. I want to throw up. Yes. I uh, I had to leave that in there because just well, the amount it's real. of yeah. The amount of horrific abuse that these people endured was then put on top of your your death is a business expense for me. It's just Jesus. callous, so like cold hearted. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ugh. So the loss of the 1622 fleet was a huge financial blow for the Spanish crown. And How's that business expense for you? Yeah, fuck you guys. You don't get any <laughs> treasure. But they were in a little bit of a pickle. So the Spanish had to actually sell some of their galleons, which are these big fighting ships, to fund their involvement in the Thirty Years' War, which was still going on. And they went at salvaging and searching for this ship for about 60 years, but they were never able to locate the Nuestra Senora, and it remained mm. lost to the sea. Oh. Now, let's talk about Mel Fisher for Who? a second. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> Oh, Mel Fisher, an Indiana-born former chicken farmer who eventually moved to California and opened the first diving shop in the state? That Mel Fisher. Okay. You know I the- did, I didn't. I didn't know, but thank you. Okay. It's, he's the one who, in 1953, married a woman named Dolores Horton, and she became his business partner. She was actually one of the first women to learn how to dive and set the women's record by staying underwater for 50 hours. Hi, that's a long time. That's crazy long. That's crazy long. In fact, it was the record. Yes, um, yes, good. So Mel and Dolores had five children. They had four sons, Terry, Dirk, Kim, and Kane, and one daughter named Taffy. Oh, Taffy. Taffy. <laughs> That's not, I don't think I've ever heard that word as a name before. T-A-F-F-I? Um, I think the candy, at least Laffy Taffy, <laughs> is spelled T-A-F-F-Y. I mean, I think I'm just It doesn't gonna, matter. <laughs> I'm gonna, unless she calls me up to tell me that I'm pronouncing her name wrong, I'm gonna call her Taffy for now. For sure. So, beginning in 1969, more than 300 years after its sinking, American treasure hunters Mel Fisher, Finney Richard, and a group of subcontractors began the 16-and-a-half-year search for the Nuestra Señora de Acha. So, Whoa. what does that sound? Is someone talking? Somebody, there's like... Something going on outside, like a lawnmower or something. I can hear it. Or a vacuum cleaner. There's a vacuum cleaner going upstairs, I bet. Yeah. Fuck. Or a blender or something. Shared spaces. Yes, we're just going to hold for blender for... for indefinitely. Jesus, come on. <laughs> well we chose an audio medium <laughs> yeah so we're bound to run into some sound issues yeah we're just gonna wait for a couple more minutes yes they're fucking done doing whatever the fuck someday we won't have to worry about this we'll be in our own houses or recording studios or whatever yeah, my dream for us is to rent, like, a studio space where we can mm -hmm. record our shit together. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll have baffling and all that fun stuff. <sighs> really? At 4.20 on a Sunday, you're going to do this to us? Of all times and of all places. Come on now. 
Yeah, it seems like it's vacuuming. Ugh. Do you think that'll last a long time? I hope not. How big of a space can it be? One eternity later. Okay. So, beginning in 1969, more than 300 years after its sinking, American treasure hunters Mel Fisher, Finney Richard, and a group of subcontractors began the 16-and-a-half-year search for the Nuestra Señora de Achoa. Ooh. Uh, I know. Okay. So, in 1970, Fisher had recovered portions of uh, wrecked cargo from the sister ship, the Santa Margarita. So he knew that he was getting close. He also proposed the idea to several other potential, you know, contractors to help him. But they were discouraged by the fact that this was an extremely dangerous dive and they would be paid minimum wage unless they found the ship. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's like they really have to succeed or it's not going to go good. Go well. Yeah, exactly. Or they're not going to get paid a fair wage but then his crew did find some silver bars in 1973 and the tally marks on the bars matched those of the nuestra señoras uh so they are getting fucking close unfortunately on july 20th 1975 Mel's oldest son, Dirk, Dirk's wife, Angel, and a diver named Rick Gage died after their boat sank due to oh. a bilge pump failure. Oh, God. That's awful. And, you know, Mel was hit by this tragedy extremely hard, but he kept looking for the treasure. And his constant refrain was, today is the day. Mm. And he would say that every morning. He would say, today is the day, Mm -hmm. today is the day. And in 1980, they discovered the wreck of the Santa Margarita. So we are so close. We're practically on fire. Okay. In July 1985, Fisher's son, Kane, sends a message to his father's headquarters. Quote, put away the charts. We've found the main pile. Oh, my God. (laughs) So they actually, they found this ship. The estimated 450 million cash was known as the Atocha Motherlode, and it included 40 tons of silver and gold, 114,000 Spanish silver coins known as pieces of eight, gold coins, Colombian emeralds, gold and silver artifacts, and a thousand silver ingots. This was only roughly half of the treasure that went down with the ship, but I mean, I would be pretty happy, wouldn't you? That's half? I mean, that's fine. You're fine. Yeah, and the the stern castle of the ship, or I think which is basically like the treasure room, like the place where they like hold all the the really expensive stuff was holding more gold and muzu emeralds which have not been found as of august 2017 so Mm. we're still looking for that specific stuff also missing are 300 silver bars and eight bronze cannons oh those those old things those old things some cool stuff they did find was navigational equipment of the day, ceramic vessels, and these things offered a look into 17th century life in Spain in the New World. And all of this, of course, had a value of about $400 million, making Fisher and his family instant millionaires. Yeah. Hi. Hi. So the You've site, arrived. You've arrived. Well, can you even imagine... This man has been dreaming about finding this treasure. He lost part of his family to Mm -hmm. finding this fucking treasure. And he finds it. He actually finds it. Yeah. That's incredible. That's some national treasures kind of shit. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. This guy's the fucking Nick Cage of shipwreck. Yeah. uh, Shipwreck hunting. And he goes on actually to find a lot more shipwrecks. Oh, Um, I bet he does. 
Yeah. But so the site of the wreckage of the Nuestra Señora is called the Bank of Spain, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) Yeah, you can just go digging around for some money. Yes. And people are still searching in and around that area. So some of these emeralds that they did find, they are also from the Muzu Mine in Colombia. And they are renowned for their color, geometry, and they're known as some of the finest emeralds in the world. Mm, I love a good emerald. Love a good emerald. But... You know, the in this world, we have to take the good with the bad. So the discovery of this treasure led to a prolonged legal battle with the state of Florida. Sure, 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 sure. Florida maintains that since the wreck was found within the state's three-mile territorial waters, the treasure belongs to the state. Oh, God. So they had this big, long, prolonged legal battle, and a judge ultimately actually ruled in Mr. Fisher's favor. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, he found it. Yeah. The state of Florida had nothing to do with it. Yeah, but this actually sets a precedent for all other kinds of cases because this was the first time Mm -hmm. a federal court had ruled that federal admiralty law overrides state salvage law for wrecks in state territorial waters. Okay. But, you know, Fisher, of course always the generous man he cut a deal with florida and he kept 75 percent of the treasure and florida got 25 percent. nice nice i love it super good okay so after these legal troubles in 1987 congress passed the abandoned shipwreck law which gave states the rights to shipwrecks located within three miles of the coastline so they quickly uh They learned from their mistakes. They did. They did. All right. All right. All right. Uncle Sam wants his money. Okay. Even if it's buried in the ground and nobody's found it yet. It's mine. It belongs to Uncle Sam. God damn it. God damn it. Okay. So in 1997, a judge ordered that Mr. Fisher's company, Salvors Inc., had to hand over cannonballs and anchor and other loot from a sunken Spanish galleon for ruining more than an acre of protected seagrass off the Florida Keys while looking for shipwrecks in 1992. Oh. So they were like, "You, you ruined... You absolutely ruined our seagrass. Give us, give us some of your treasure. <laughs> I, I guess, yeah. That's, that's kind of fair. I see their point. Fair's fair. <laughs> uh, so after the discovery, of course, items from the treasure went on permanent display at Fisher's Marine Museum in Key West, Florida. Okay, so Mel Fisher was a super eccentric guy after he found the treasure. I mean, he was a super eccentric guy before he found the treasure, but now he had, you know, he had cash. Uh, (laughs) So Mel wore one of the pieces that was going to be auctioned off. It was a piece of treasure, a heavy gold chain that hangs past waist length. And he wore it when he appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Cool. Uh, and this was this chain was dubbed quote the money chain, um, <laughs> and I thought that this was interesting because okay so at the time the Spanish king had placed a twenty percent tariff on gold bullion and it this was known as the royal filth but it was a tax that didn't apply to gold if you turned it into jewelry hmm. so, <laughs> okay <laughs> so you could avoid paying tax on gold if you turned it into jewelry great yeah they found a lot of gold jewelry which i think was funny because it was just it was just an old spanish way to avoid paying taxes nice 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 another interesting item that was found was this really cool spoon that is a masculine face between a pair of condors that's like an incan symbol of royalty and the spoon went to auction for between $160,000 to $180,000. Oh, my God. Spoon. For a spoon. <laughs> and you're not going to use it to spoon pudding into your mouth. Like, what are you I mean, using that for? I don't know. My grandma had a collection of antique spoons. Not cool antique spoons like these spoons. But, you know, just hang it on your wall. Admire it. Think about it. Yeah. 
spoons are not an unusual thing to collect, but I don't know. That's a lot of, that's a lot of cash. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't compare to another uh, category of item found on this ship was Bezor stones. Do you know what those are? They're small, like egg shaped kind of like obstructions made of organic material found in the digestive tracts of llamas, alpacas, deers, and other two-stomached animals. And at the time, they would like dip it in some water and drink it, and it was thought to remove toxins or poisons. This sounds like something from Harry Potter. Well, it is mentioned in Harry Potter, but it was like an old-timey medicine thing. They would use bezoars for like a fuck ton of stuff, and they were really ra- rare, so people would actually kind of like rent them from other people, uh, which I thought was funny. Like, hey, can I rent your animal? Like, your animal nearly poop stone. Uh, (laughs) But so I'll end with this. Mel Fisher died of cancer on December 19th, 1998. Of course, his legacy is the finding of this treasure. Mm -hmm. But also here's a little quote from the New York Times obituary for him written by Eric Pace that says, quote, Mr. Fisher's success in discovering treasure and in winning title under traditional admiral law led environmentalists, historians, and archaeologists to persuade Congress and states to control salvage. In 1987, Congress approved the Abandoned Shipwrecked Act which put an end to admiral law and conveyed to states the title to shipwrecks within three miles of coastline. So basically, one of his legacies is that he changed American law around salvage and shipwrecks forever, as well as recovering what is said to be one of the most valuable shipwrecks ever discovered. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, so that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. That's bone tabulous. I'm bone sorry. <laughs> bone rip, not bone rip. No, no. <laughs> this is a this is an explicit content warning show, but not that explicit all the no. time. Just sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, we made it through Katoon, <laughs> through through vacuum cleaners and sirens. Yeah, this episode was a was an audio nightmare. It was so. an audio nightmare. But we made it through. And That's showbiz, you. baby. Yeah. And thank you guys so much for listening. We're we're grateful to have you every week. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for listening. We want you to continue to rate, review, and subscribe if possible. We've got some really exciting guests coming up in the next few weeks. So um and thanks for listening. Yeah. And the last thing I have to say to you is bon voyage. Oh, bon voyage to you? To you and you and you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Anything Bones. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Anything Bones Podcast or email us at anythingbonespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Nick Kruger for our spooky music and Stephen Vetteroff at Chubby Scrubby on Twitter for our jazzy vocals. And thank you to Camilla Franklin at Camilla Strader on Instagram for our beautiful bony artwork. Please rate, review, and subscribe. No tours.